You remember when you got your first personal computer? Maybe when you unboxed your first iPhone? Remember pushing all those keys, not really knowing what they did? Remember having to get a five-year-old help you figure it out? My mother was very technologically disadvantaged. There were times when she would have me over to her house and she would want to show me something on her computer and she would sit down and try to look it up and eventually she'd get so frustrated she'd just push herself away from the desk and say, I give up. Maybe you're that way. Maybe you don't realize, James is saying amen, maybe you don't realize all the functions of your computer or iPhone. Maybe you just use your iPhone to call people. That's weird, isn't it? Maybe you have one of those $1,500 computers that you use to play solitaire on, and that's it. My guess is there are a lot of people, maybe in this room, that struggle with understanding all the functions of their phone or their computer. And there's such a learning curve that maybe you just give up. Like my mother, you throw your hands up and say, I give up. We don't always understand the power that we have at our fingertips. We don't always understand what it is that we have possession of. Take that same analogy and apply it to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, where we're looking at tonight. It reads like this. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Does the name Hattie Green mean anything to you? You know, Hattie Green died in the early 1900s, but she was known as a very wealthy person who lived her life as someone who was poor. Her estate was worth over $100 million at her death, but she lived her entire life as a pauper. She wouldn't even heat her oatmeal. She would eat it cold so she wouldn't have to waste the money to heat her oatmeal. Her son broke his leg, and he, she spent so much time trying to find a free clinic that he eventually had to have his leg amputated because it came, became infected. Hattie Green is known as one of America's greatest misers. She was extremely wealthy, but lived her life as if she were poor, not understanding or grasping the blessings and the riches that she had in front of her. And I I think that is, in essence, the theme of Paul's writing here. In fact, it's a primary theme of the book of Ephesians, our riches in Christ. You go back to the beginning of his epistle. After a brief salutation, Paul jumps right into a doxology that outlines the blessings that we Christians enjoy. Verses 4 through 6, he talks about the blessings involving the Father. Verses 7 through 12, the blessings involving the Son. And then the blessings involving the Spirit in verses 13 through 14. 
The Ephesians, of course, were children of God. They had been washed in the blood of Christ. They had demonstrated a love for one another. However, they weren't solely connected to the computer. They didn't understand all that it could do. They didn't understand all of its functions. Kind of like us with our iPhone sometimes. Paul would take on a strategy and employ this strategy so that he could get these saints to understand the necessity of being connected to the power source. He starts at the same place that every one of us should start. On his knees. Which is where every one of us should start as well. That's a great strategy. He is intimately familiar with the power that he has at his disposal. So he starts by telling the Ephesian Christians about his prayer life. Specifically that he had been praying for them. And for them having a deeper knowledge of God. The letter to the Ephesians is about the church and about the blessings that come from being in Christ and in the Lord's church. The first three chapters describe the glory and the magnificence that the Gentiles have partaken of. They were dead in their trespasses. Now they are alive in Jesus. In chapter 4, though, we see a transition where Paul goes from talking about the blessings that are found in Christ to focusing on what it is to be a blessed people. How to live like a blessed people. To be a new creature in Christ means that we are afforded certain blessings that people who aren't in Christ are not afforded. And so we need to be in tune to those blessings. We need to understand the power of being connected to the source. And I think this message is just as applicable today as it was back then. We're not Gentiles anymore. We are the new Israel. We are a new creation. One day we will take possession of that inheritance that God has promised. So we must live like people who are new creatures in Christ. And if you look at verse 15 again, it reads, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints. These are the marks of a great church. You look at them again, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for all the saints. If you have these two things present within your church, you've got a great church. A love for the Lord and a love for one another. Everybody of the Lord's people, everybody that exists that contains the Lord's people should be marked by a love for God and a love for one another. Paul loves this church in Ephesus. And what we see in the following verses is the requests of Paul for a church that he loves and is doing well. So, with that little background, notice verse 17 again. He says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I want you to put yourself in the sandals of a Christian in Ephesus. Think about standing there or sitting there that day as this letter is being read aloud because these letters were read aloud to the congregation and imagine hearing it for the first time. Now remember that you are a part of a movement that people in the world around you, the culture around you is hostile towards. They see it as foolishness and you see that these people were struggling to make a living, they were poor. They needed better jobs. They needed more money. And Paul says that he is praying for them. And what is he praying for? So that they get a better job? So that they get more money? No, he says what he is praying for on their behalf is that they know God better. 
That's what Paul finds urgent in the moment. And the reason is because, remember, Paul and others during this time believed that Jesus was coming back within their lifetime. He was coming back soon. And so what was most important is that they prepare for his coming. What was most important is that they know God better. That was the most urgent need. Because even if they had a better job, they're going to leave it behind. Even if they had more money, they're going to leave it behind. What's most important is that they know God better and they take care of their soul. Therefore, Paul prays for what's most important in the moment. And Paul's main prayer for these people was that they know God better. Is that our main prayer? Do we pray that prayer on a regular basis? Do we want to know God better and do we pray to know God better? Remember Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24? It says, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Is there anything more important than knowing God? God says there isn't. There's nothing more important than that. You don't have to look very far to understand that people today don't really know God. You turn on the television, you turn on the radio, you look in your know, publications. It's not hard to see when you scan the religious landscape that the biggest problem in the religious world is that people don't know God. And the sad thing is we can know God, we must know God. In fact, the power source is right at our fingertips. It's called a Bible. And, and the things that have been revealed in the scriptures about God are things that we need to know. Otherwise, how are you going to know how to worship God if you don't know him? How are you going to know what's pleasing to him if you don't know him? How are you going to know what his will is for your life if you don't know him? It is crucial that we know God, at least what has been revealed to us in his written word. There will always be question marks about God. The problem is we've put a period and we've said that's into discussion when we really haven't looked very far. Here's the thing. It is crucial that we know God. However, you've got to have the right concept of God. That's where we get off track sometimes, too. It's not enough to know God. You've got to have the right concept of God. You've got to know the right God. You've got to know the God that is, that is presented to us in Scripture. If you don't know that God then you're not worshiping the right God. You're not living for the right God. So just believing in a God is not enough. Beginning with yourself and kind of reasoning upward, which is what a lot of people do today, is not enough. There are a lot of people who talk a good game, but you hear them preach, you hear them teach, you hear them discuss their belief in God, and you soon realize that's not the God of the Bible. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is God. And the main thing is to keep him the main thing. You start with God. You get God right, you get everything else right. So we start with him and a right concept of him, or else everything is meaningless. Paul goes on to say these words. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul prays that the Ephesians will be fully connected to the power source. That they will see it, that they will experience, and thus they will share it with others. And by writing this letter, Paul is hoping to answer his own prayer. 
Because while he prays for the eyes of their heart to be opened and enlightened, he reminds them of the fact that they have been predestined to adoption as sons, that they have obtained an inheritance, that they have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. But Paul wanted to reiterate that they are what they are because of the power of God a God who specializes in resurrections. Here's what Paul had to say in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know what the major takeaway for me is from this passage? Is that you can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. It is only by the grace of God that you are sitting here this evening as a saved child of God. And it is only going to be with the help of God and with others that you're ever going to make it to your destination. You cannot do this on your own. God, in his tremendous forethought, knew that the church needed to exist, if for no other reason, to help others, to strengthen others, to assist others and getting to their eternal destination. Now, there are other purposes for the church, but God never intended for Christians to practice Christianity in isolation. He never expected us to do this solely on our own, because he knows that we can't, right? Non-Christians sometimes think that Christianity is a set of of rules that improve your life, maybe, or some think that it's, you know, a self-help kind of religion. Some people you know, are hauling around baggage and, and never can seem to unload it. All of this is because their heart is blind. Paul says, open the eyes of your heart, be enlightened. Again, you can't do this on your own. You won't get to heaven on your own. The same power that God used to raise us from the dead is the same power that he lavishes on each and every one of us so that we overwhelmingly conquer. It's a power that brings love and understanding and wisdom and forgiveness and healing and peace and grace. It's a power that helps us to restore relationships and to overcome obstacles and to heal broken bodies and to comfort the grieving, to assure anxious minds. And it's available to all of us who are in Christ. It's available to those of us who are the church. We've just got to understand the power that we have at our disposal. I read the story the other day about a guy who went and bought a, a brand new chainsaw. And the guy that sold it to him said, I mean, this chainsaw is so powerful, you can cut down like 40 trees a day. The man went home and he came back a few days later and he slammed the thing down on the counter and he said, it doesn't work. You told me I could cut down like 40 trees a day. At the most, I've been able to cut down three. And the salesman looked at it, he greased the chain on it, and he said, try this. So he went home, and he came back a few days later, he slammed it back on on the counter, and he said, okay, that helped a little bit. I cut down five trees, but there's no way I'm hitting that 40 trees a day like you told me. And the salesman said, well, let's let's go outside and let's try something. So he went out there, and he pulled the ripcord on, and he started it. The man goes, what's that noise? He didn't realize the power that he had at his disposal. 
that you actually have to start it in order to use it properly? Do we understand the power that we have at our disposal? We cannot accomplish that much on our own. If left to our own devices, we're about as useful as a chainsaw that doesn't run. But with God, what we can accomplish, what we can do when we plug into the power source, look out. As you've heard me say quite often recently, it's not what we can do, but it's what God can do working through us. We are God's method, and we need to be aware that He is in control. And when we allow Him to be in control, when we plug into the power source, not only are the eyes of our heart opened, we can clearly see not only the power that is at our disposal, but we can also see clearly how to share it with others. I want you to pay close attention to what Paul specifically prays for concerning these brethren. He mentions three things that will result from the eyes of their hearts being opened. First, he says, there is the hope of their calling. And this looks back to their conversion. Remember, the New Testament, at least in Paul's writings especially, were written to people who've already been baptized, okay? These were written to Christians. And so he's writing to the church, and, and he is telling them, go back and think about your conversion. Much of his writings are talking about how to live as a baptized believer. And, and I do this. I don't know if you do this, but I think about this quite often. I think back to my baptism. I think back to my conversion. I think back to the life that I lived before I became a child of God. I think about how far I was from where I'm standing today. I think about the impact that people like my wife have had on my life. I think about people like Mike Gaskell and Steve Norris and Gerald Lillard and, and Ralph Wallace and the impact they have made in my spiritual life and my daily walk with God. I think about would I be a dedicated disciple if I weren't a minister? Would I be here every Sunday and Wednesday? Yeah, think about those things. Would I be a deacon in the church? Would I be an elder? I mean, all of it boils down to God has led me to this point in my life, and I tell you folks, I thank him every day for it. Every day I thank him for putting me in this place at this time in my life. It's a prayer that I pray constantly of thankfulness as I look back on where I was at and where I've come, how far I've come. I think we all should do that kind of reflection. In verses 3 through 14, Paul recites some of the elements of this hope. He says, Blessed with every spiritual blessing, chosen in Christ, predestined to be adopted sons, recipients of his grace, redeemed through his blood, forgiveness of sins, wisdom and understanding, God's plan made known to us, chosen and predestined, included in Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, given the earnest of the Spirit. All of this is yours, he says, all of it. Those of you in Christ, all of this belongs to you. It's the possession of every child of God. We are blessed beyond measure. Paul wanted them to understand that, and he wants us to understand it as well. These riches and these blessings are so important. Understand what you have at your disposal. Secondly, Paul says, you've looked back, now look forward to the riches and the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Think about where you're going. Dream big. Dream about going home. You see, Going to heaven isn't so much about going to a place as it is going to be with a person. And you think of it this way. When you're away from home for an extended period of time, when I'm away from home for an extended period of time, 
I can't wait to get home. But that doesn't mean I walk in the house and I say, hello, furniture. I've missed you. I don't go and hug the drapes. I'm excited to be home because of who lives there. I want to see the people that I do life with. That's who I've missed. I want to be with the people that are the closest to me and I'm the closest to them. So when you think about looking ahead to your eternal destination, you think about going home, it's not the gates of pearl, it's not the streets of gold. It's who lives there and who you get to be with. It's more than just a place, it's a person. Finally, Paul mentions the surpassing greatness of God's power towards those who believe. And Paul employs four different Greek words for power here. One of them is where we get our word for dynamite. Another one, we get our word for energy. But he uses uh, some words that mean muscular strength. Another that means courageous power. And the point that he's trying to make is that God's power is all sufficient. That there is no need for any of us to fear or to be anxious or to be insecure or to feel powerless. The glorious news is that God's power is wrapped up in a person. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. We know that Christ is living in us. Therefore, we have total access to his power. A power that raised us from a life that was dead in our trespasses to a new creature in Christ. And the power that will raise us on the last day so that we can live with him for all eternity. I want to ask you tonight, is Paul's prayer your prayer? Maybe your prayer life needs an overhaul. Maybe you're, you're, you're praying for good things and right things, but maybe not always for the best things. Is your prayer Paul's prayer? What are, what are you praying for? What things are most important to you? Praying for rain? You know, I, I grew up in a place where it rained all the time, so excuse me if I don't really like rain that much. I, I'm just not a big fan of rain. I like our climate here. I like that it never rains. I know that other people don't, and so uh, I, I give you that one. You know, there are a lot of things that we pray for. We pray for our country. We pray for the sick. And all, you know, all important things, are you praying for the church? Are you praying for Oldham Lane specifically? Because listen, folks, we can have dynamic programming. We can fill the pews every Sunday. But if we're not a praying church, we are doomed to fail. Each and every one of us need to be praying for this church, for each other. Not just those who are sick, although that's very important. Not just for our leaders, although that's very important. Not just for me and Jake and Blake and Stephanie and Brianna and our staff, although that's really important. Praying for the welfare of this congregation. Praying that we can be protected from Satan's darts. Praying that we can be a church that is on the move, that doesn't get complacent, that doesn't get lax. That we can be a church that is after God's own heart. We need to be praying that prayer constantly. Let's do that right now. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this church. We thank you for what we have been experiencing over the last several years, really, and thankful for the tremendous growth that we have had and the, the people that have come our way that have added so much to our congregation. We thank you for our humble beginnings, you know, as a church plant back in the mid-90s. We thank you for the impact that we've been able to have on our community. 
And God, we thank you that we have been able to send the devil running. And we pray that we can continue to do that. That as a church, we can be aggressive in fighting sin, in fighting against the devil, and keeping your, pri- uh, your bride pure and lovely. That we can be a church that seeks to glorify you in everything that we do. That we can live out those one another passages that we read so much about. That we can be a family that truly exists to love you and to love each other. So that we can enjoy a wonderful spiritual family reunion in heaven someday. God, we just thank you for the riches and the blessings that you have bestowed upon us. And we thank you for the power that we have at our disposal. And may we never neglect that or overlook it. May we plug into it. And may we always be about you and your business. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. You know, I read somewhere that early African converts were really dedicated to prayer And so they would go and find a place in the brush somewhere where they would sit and they would spend several moments in prayer each day. They would walk through these grassy fields so often to go and pray that they would tread down the grass to where they made just dirt paths. And where they sat would be worn as well because they were so devoted to prayer. And it became such that when someone would become lax in their prayer life, when they would not be so regular in prayer, grass would start to grow back. It was easy to see. So that their brothers and sisters would come to them, holding them accountable and saying, Brother or sister, grass is growing on your path. Don't let grass grow on your path. Go to God regularly. Pray for all those things we mentioned a moment ago, but pray for this church as well. Pray for yourself. Pray that you can be the child of God that you need to be, that you can add to the life of this congregation, that you can be the type of disciple that God wants you to be. We've said it before, but Jesus wants finishers. Let's be finishers. Let's finish this great work that God has started within us. Clyde's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you tonight, if you're struggling with something, if you'd like to study the Bible, you'd like to begin a daily walk with God by putting on Christ in baptism, we're ready to help you. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?